0: This is Eye to Eye, an Ayn Rand Institute podcast. I'm Amanda Maxim. Today I'm excited to be speaking via Skype with Neil Carter. Neil is the president and founder of Okanagan Specialty Fruits, a small biotechnology company based in Canada specializing in the creation of novel tree fruit varieties. Their first variety, they are gearing up to introduce a new apple into the American market. It's called the Arctic apple, and it's a genetically engineered version of the fruit. It's meant to solve an ages-old annoyance. Neil Carter, welcome to the program.
1: Thank you, Amanda.
0: So from what I've read, your company has found a way to make an old standby fruit do a pretty incredible new trick. What is the Arctic apple?
1: Yeah, an Arctic apple is uh, an as an apple that we've genetically engineered to not go brown. So that what that really means is that we've taken the enzyme in the apple that drives the browning reaction, and we've turned it off. So we've used an apple gene to turn off a trait that most people didn't like about apples, which was the fact they went brown.
0: I used to get apple slices in my lunch, and my mom would always tell me, you know, when I would be wary of the the brown apple slices, you know, not to worry about it that they're... Um, there's nothing wrong with the apples. And, you know, as it turns out, my mom, she was right about a number of things. Uh, but I'm wondering, what's your take on it? Was she was she right about this? Do, does the brown indicate that there's somehow something wrong with the apple, that it's spoiled or rotten?
1: No, well, it can, of course. Uh, I think in our conversation today, we're really talking about that the enzymatic browning, which is that browning that occurs within a matter of, of minutes or hours after an apple is being sliced or bruised. Um, there is browning associated with rotten bacterial decay and, and that browning is, isn't good for you. Um, but, but in terms of just the brown enzymatic browning, pigment, you know, brown pigment that you see in a sliced apple, it's not that it's so much bad for you, is that there is off flavoring and that occurs. And, um, you know, it's somewhat unsightly from a cosmetic point of view, but, but more importantly, the, the brown reaction, the brown pigment is produced by, the polyphenols, which are the good things in apples, the antioxidants, the flavor and the aroma, mm-hmm. they're getting consumed by that enzyme, and and making you know and driving that drives the browning reaction. And as they're consumed, basically the apple is less nutritious. And so you're basically you know you're you're having an apple that's got brown pigment in it. It's not going to be as beneficial to. You.
0: I guess I've seen sliced apples in the grocery store that don't look brown, um, and yet you've gone and you've engineered an apple to not turn brown. But aren't there other ways to stop the browning process? I mean, why, why is a genetically engineered apple necessary?
1: Well, you know, I guess, uh, yeah, the answer is yes. There's other ways of doing it. And the way that's done in the product you refer to being sold at retail or at McDonald's um, and other, other fast food outlets uh, is they use an antioxidant. So they're basically treating the apple slice. They slice it up and then they dip it in a solution for a period of time and that solution is absorbed into the apple's cells and it's a, an antioxidant it stops the browning reaction the browning reaction is an oxidation reaction um but the, the two things that happen one is some off flavoring occurs a lot of them have uh, acetic acid or calcium ascorbate in them and so they kind of make the apple taste more like an orange a citrus zingy taste to it um but also it's expensive. Uh, and, uh, you know, my wife and I are apple growers ourselves, and the frustrating thing for us is that the antioxidant used to make apple slices is worth pretty much is, is the same amount as the apples themselves. So they can represent 40% of the production, you know, the manufacturing cost of putting apple slices in a bag.
0: It sounds like there's, if you want apple slices now that don't turn brown, you can add a, a chemical to them uh, to, to make that occur. But, how do your, how do your, your genetically, uh, genetically engineered apples prevent the browning process?
1: As I said, when I just kind to describe what an arctic apple is, is the so what you have is you have the polyphenols, which are, as I said, the, the aroma and the flavor and the antioxidant components of the apple. And when an apple is bruised or sliced or bitten into, the cells are, are ruptured, and that allows the enzyme, polyphenol oxidase, to be released. Um, So these two things are kept apart in the apple in its normal form. Cells get crushed, they're allowed to mix, and the enzyme drives the browning reaction and consumes the vitamin C and polyphenols to make the brown pigment. An arctic apple doesn't have the enzyme, so we've turned off that polyphenol oxidase, and so without the enzyme, you don't get the reaction and you don't get the brown pigment form.
0: I mean, kind of along those lines, I mean, I don't know that many people know how exactly apples have you know have come to be the fruit that we enjoy today I mean if I went out in the wild would I be able to to pick myself a, a Granny Smith apple from a tree
1: no no you know the, that's the, exactly right and, and it's not just apples it's all the food we eat have been you know our, our selections from breeding programs that have been ongoing for in some cases you know 10,000 years uh, uh, so the, you know, wild types, as they're referred to, so the, the native indigenous apple cultivars, they tend to be, more, you know, very small, russeted, ugly, tart, um, and stringent in some cases. And there may be more like some of the crab apple varieties that you may have seen at times. Uh, um, so so they're, you know, they're, they are the product of very extensive uh, breeding programs that have been going on for for hundreds hundreds of years in the case of apples.
0: From what you're saying, it sounds like the apples that we we have today are definitely the product of human influence changes, but, and, you know, maybe selective breeding, um, crossbreeding, hybridization, those types of things. And I'm curious as to what do you think is the distinction between that process, the one that we've done, you know, for maybe, as you said, thousands of years versus this new genetic engineering. Do you find that to be a, a meaningful distinction, or is it just uh, something on a continuum?
1: Yeah, you know, I, I think in the case of Arctic apples, it's really more on the, the continuum. Um, you know, it's a, it's a continuation of using the best breeding tools to to um, bring new traits into apples. Um, you know, I, I think when you you look at some of the other biotech crops that are being developed, things like you know Roundup Ready soybean or BT corn, where they've actually brought in Protein from a another plant um, or from a bacteria, then then you know you see that's that's where biotechnology and use of genetic engineering really shows its strength far beyond the conventional breeding practices. Um, we haven't done that here, and, and and purposely so. We really felt knowing that apples were an iconic fruit and. And that you know the consumer reaction to use of genetic engineering in Apple might have you know there will be people who are against this. We really were looking for um, a way to do this that's relatively innocuous. You know we're we're taking an end we're taking the Apple's own DNA and using that DNA to turn off an enzyme in Apple. So you know at the end of the day, an Arctic Apple is an Apple. It doesn't doesn't have anything other other proteins being expressed in it. and I think that's an important distinction as you know, certainly down the road, we'd like people to get past that idea and so that we could do other things. And, but there are a lot of other things we're working on in apple and tree fruits that would be similar, similar approaches where we're using the apple's own genome to, to improve the fruit.
0: People have made the argument that genetically modified products are... Uniquely risky, and that's the reason why they need to be subject to all these these special cautions and special regulatory oversight. Um, but I'm wondering what what is your view on that? I mean, if like you said, if you had two two different apples, two different new apple um, species or cultivars, then and and one of them was just produced by sort of normal selective breeding, and the other is genetically modified. I mean, those two apples take very very different journeys. Um, do you think that that's, that the process of genetic engineering is inherently risky in some way?
1: No, I, in fact, I, I wouldn't think, I don't feel it's any more risky at all. And, you know, and I will, will say that it, it may vary on what you do to it in terms of the trait, you know, like if you're trying to turn, put some sort of a vaccine into apples, well then, okay, that's a whole different story. And, you know, you're going to have to do proper safety assessments, uh, in the case of an Arctic apple, where what we're doing is turning off an enzyme to make it not go brown, well, really, you know, I think you'd have to ask yourself, well, what what is the risk here? Like, what what, what could we have possibly done that would make it more risky? And uh, and, and these are things like you know, increased allergenicity or um, increased uh, toxic the, the level of toxins in apples, you know, these sorts of things. And 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 because we've um, you know we know it's very exactly what we've done. You know, our, our vector is designed to do a very specific thing, and and uh, and once we've done that, we will look for for potential non-target um, reactions and such. But but you know, the chance of that is very slim. And, and in fact, I'll, I'll just mention that you know something like mutation breeding, which is um, to gamma radiate or or chemically induce a mutation in apples or in barley or any, any plant for that matter. Um, you know, this, this has the opportunity to more or less scramble the genome randomly. So it's a, it's a non-targeted breeding technique and, uh, mutation breeding isn't, isn't, uh, regulated. And so, you know, you can, you can go and scramble the genome and come up with a new apple variety and, um, and you know the chance of increased allergenicity, toxicity, and nutrients or whatever could would be as high or higher than that if something developed through genetic engineering. And yet that product is not regulated. So so it's certainly not a, a level playing field here. Um, biotech crops have far more onerous um, scientific due diligence that there is demanded of them, and and that's really a product of. You know, a lot of, of anti GM activist activity, I suppose. They've been very successful in making it so that the regulatory oversight is, is extremely onerous. And, you know, there'll be many people who could ar- argue the fact that it's, it's, it isn't more dangerous and it isn't, it isn't something needed, particularly if these are with, with traits that we've looked at many, many times. Uh, things like, like, uh, uh, herbicide resistance and such. But, but, you know, so, so it's, it is what it is and it's unfortunate. But, it, but that regulatory oversight adds costs and keeps many new products out of the market.
0: How long are we talking? How long have your, your apples been undergoing testing and the, the deregulation process?
1: Well, undergoing testing, you know, they went into the field in 2003, 2004, 2005. Um, you know, so the first Arctic trees are now in the ground in their 11th season. Um, but the deregulation petition in the United States was submitted in May 2010. So we're now, uh, three years plus, three years and what a month or two months mm-hmm. into it. And, uh, you know, that's, that's a long time. So, so we've been collecting data for 11 years and, and, uh, <clears throat> we've, we've had it was a- analyzed and synthesized, put all that da- data into a very comprehensive Package to submit to the regulatory agencies. They've been looking at it for three plus years, and we're still, you know, and there's, there still is no decision. So uh, it's it's a
0: long journey. I'm kind of curious, as you know, you're as the head of a, a small business. Um, how do you continue to be to be funded and to plan for, you know, a process that I mean, it's certainly long, and that's one thing to plan for, but it's also one that there's no clear like you said, it seems like there's no clear end in sight how do you how do you plan for that?
1: Yeah, this is you know and since with the timing when we started and, and what we have today, this has all got much worse or much much more difficult um, because the uncertainty around the timelines and the regulatory process creates business risk you know uh, as time goes by, you're burning cash you time, times money as they say mm-hmm. and, um, so if you you not knowing. How long the regulatory process is going to take increases business risk to, to the point where it's really, um, you know, a, a big, big challenge. In the case of our small company, uh, the way we've dealt with this is that uh, we've we've always known this would take a long time. We have been extremely frugal and very, very focused. Um, when we first got started, we had grandiose plans of developing a whole range of products. And and we did do a lot of the discovery research around that, and, and you know, and, the, and, and then they're sort of in our back pocket, and we put them on the shelf, and said, no, we got to just focus on Arctic. Um, and and uh, and and then to add to that, it's not just you know the regulatory uncertainty creates other problems because when you you know you how you're out there doing pre-commercialization activities and talking to growers and industry folks and retailers and brokers and food service companies and. You know, all these kind of guys. And they're saying, well, okay, but, you know, when's it going to be ready? And, you're going to, and your answer is, well, you know, we don't really know. Mm-hmm. And um, so, you know, trying to get growers, getting growers to commit to planting this, they're going to say, well, we, we want to wait until it's deregulated. And, of course, they want to wait till it's deregulated. They don't want to spend money to plant trees and then find out it's not going to be deregulated or right. or it's going to have some conditions or implications around the deregulation that hadn't been expected. And so, so it delays everything. It's not just delaying, you know, it delays your, your willingness to generate, you know, trees in the nursery so you're ready to put them out in the field for, for your grower clients. It delays your grower clients from getting things in the ground. It delays you getting test apples that the food service industry wants to try. You know, it's, it's, it's a, it's a huge impediment.
0: You mentioned that your, your company is small. I mean, how small are we talking? We're seven. Just seven. And do you think that that, I mean, you think about other biotechnology firms, I mean, they probably employ thousands of people. I mean, how, so what, is that part of your, your strategy or is the Apple part of your strategy? I, I was part of
1: a panel at the Bio Conference in Chicago in April, which was really, you know, small businesses and, and ag biotech and, you know, is it doable? And, uh, and there were three other two three of us in the panel, and two two of the three said no. I was the only guy that said yes. Um, and and it's been really unfortunate that there were a lot of um, companies doing exciting things, great things, when we first got started, and, and almost all of them have fallen by the wayside. And the ones who have continued to exist today, they've kind of morphed into a company that does something else. Um, so. So what you find now amongst the small company players in biotech, largely they're focusing on discovery research. They're focusing on doing the front end work with the idea that if it works out, um, a multinational will buy it, buy buy them, or buy that technology off them, or license that technology. And you know because they look at the timelines and regulatory oversight and commercialization impediments, and they say. This it's just we can't raise money, we can't uh, fund this activity. I'm, you know, I take it from the a different side. I think no, it is doable. Uh, You just have to stay focused and have to build a business model. But but I have to say, (laughs) since April and uh, with you know some of the most recent regulatory delays, because in April we had some promises from the regulatory agencies saying how we were going to be uh, moving to our second public comment period by the middle of May. Uh, that didn't happen. It didn't happen in June. We're now into July. It still hasn't happened. It was supposed to happen in March. Um, so, you know, I'm starting to think, well, maybe I was spoke too soon here. Maybe this is just uh, not not a, a game for small businesses. Um, you can imagine if you were a university researcher and you came up with a, a great new pomegranate, let's just say, and um, and you wanted to take this to market and you went to the commercialization People at your university and said, you know, I need uh, two million dollars to do the regulatory package and pre-commercialization activities, and I'm, I'm and, and I'm going to need that two million dollars, or or even probably more, like four million dollars, and but I don't know when we're going to be able to sell it because I don't know when when we'll be done, you know, it's not a very easy pitch to make, right?
0: So I want to turn to sort of the public opinion and policy surrounding genetically modified foods and. Like I, I hear people that are very afraid of genetically modified foods. Um, should people be afraid of, of them? And how does your company handle uh, the fears and questions that I'm sure people have about your apples?
1: Well, I think the simple answer is people shouldn't be afraid of them. And, um, and, and as a company, we spend an enormous amount of time and energy uh, educating know reaching out to consumer groups and industry types and basically anybody and everybody who asks, uh, responding to questions um, doing blogs and stories on our website that describe subject matter that may be timely or topical at the time that we try to address um, we we try to stick with the science but we you know but and we and, and going to the peer-reviewed literature supporting our, our scientific uh, claims um, but it's a challenge because the the Internet allows for this proliferation of sort of pseudoscience that's out there that's uh, largely scaremongering, really, about this technology. There's an enormous amount of misinformation and misunderstanding around the use of, of genetic engineering and biotech crops. And, and that's that's really a tragedy because, because there's so much – like, there's such a good story associated with this in terms of um, – You know, improved earnings to farmers in the developing world, the reduction in pesticide use, the reduced CO2 footprint of agriculture through less tillage. Uh, You know, and the numbers are huge. You know, I I think you could, and and, and that really in the saving of lives, you know, the fact that, uh, you know, like BT cotton, for example, and the growing of cotton in China and India, you know, it literally killed people because of the abuse of, abuse and the use of pesticides to control. Problems, uh, pest problems in cotton. Well, now that you have BT cotton. They don't have to apply those pesticides, and that's saving people's lives. We're like, you know, 300,000 people a year that were dying because of pesticide abuse, and you know, so it's to me, I, I look at it and say, how can people be against a technology that saves people's lives and has the potential to benefit, you know, to improve the lives of, of literally millions more? Uh, so I think people, people need to take some time and get educated about, about that side of the story. There's always the negatives. We, as an industry, we've done a very bad job of promoting the positives.
0: Well, maybe you can speak to a few more of the, uh, the breakthroughs in biotechnology that you see as, as having real potential.
1: Well, you know, I think uh, golden rice is one that's certainly been in the media a lot and, and is, is a great example of the type of uh, product that we can do, you know, develop with uh, genetic engineering. So golden rice is a beta carotene enhanced rice cultivar that addresses vitamin A deficiencies. And, um, and in fact, I have pretty some direct involvement with this because I worked in Bangladesh and Indonesia and Thailand and Vietnam and, and, and the Philippines and, and in uh, trying to do crop diversification just for the reason that, you know, people are eating a lot of rice. Their, their diet isn't diversified enough, and so they, their diet, um, you know, uh, an intense rice diet typically means that you're going to be vitamin A deficient. And so out of that, you know, you get blindness and, and other uh, health, health problems. And so, you know, to develop a nutritionally enhanced rice cultivar with the beta carotene being expressed and so that people can eat rice and not get vitamin A deficiencies, you know, it's going to improve the lives of, of millions. It's going to, you know, I think there's uh, literature that supports a 700 seven hundred and 800,000 people under the age of five become blind every year from vitamin A deficiencies. You know, so, so there's a, an exciting product that, you know, Greenpeace is being against, the uh, anti-GM crowd is being against. And, and I'm saying, guys, you know, get, get, get real here. This is just ridiculous. That, you know, it's a tremendous product. It's an absolutely Incredible use of the technology and this tool to improve the nutrition of millions, and you know, get on the program and and don't just scaremonger because they're always saying, well, you know, it's the environmental consequences. Well, we we haven't seen any of those environmental consequences. And we're certainly not going to see that from a beta carotene enhanced rice. So so it's just ridiculous.
0: Um, I think we're running short on time, but I want to ask you, you know, maybe just two more final questions. Um, and you speak, you've spoke to this a little bit, but I'm wondering, so how do you view anti-GMO activist tactics? They, um, you know, for example, they have worked very hard to block golden rice, um, Greenpeace in particular, and they also do other sort of violent things such as mowing down um, test fields and, and destroying and burning these genetically modified crops. So if you had just, say, maybe one minute to, of their time um and you had an audience with them. What would what would you tell them?
1: Well well, um, you know, I, I think that it's time they have to get educated, they have to understand the technology before they write it off and dismiss it as something that's bad. And time and time and time again we I engage with anti-biotech advocates and they, they're just against the technology, yet they don't even know what they're talking about. They don't know what it is, they don't know what it's going to be. They don't know the benefits that have accrued to date, and they don't understand that there's never been a single health or food safety risk associated with biotech crops in the 15 years that they've been, you know, in production, and you know the two or three trillion food portions that have been served. So, so really, what what is this? This is, you know, that they're talking about safety and environmental risk. We haven't seen any of that. So, show me the evidence and, and uh, maybe I've listened but so far what we see is evidence is all you know grossly exaggerated scientific studies done paid paid for by the and the environmental industry to try to counter you know the planting of GM crops and I, to me follow the money it's all about raising money and, and uh, it's nothing to do with about saving the environment
0: and because I want to end on a positive note um just tell me uh you know what you talked about biotechnology and um you know you it sounds like it's been a, a long road for for you but one that you've you know you've embarked down um because you you felt that there was some promise to biotechnology so tell me what you know what gets you out of bed in the morning
1: <laughs> i'm pretty passionate about agriculture you know and, and in our our household uh, the day starts early we're all up at five and we're farming from five till five at least probably and uh and on top of that, you know, I'm trying to run this small biotech company and deal with the, the myriad of, of issues and, and challenges that go along with that. And, uh, I want it to happen. You know, it, it's going to happen. We're so close now. Um, if we can just get this deregulation done, we've been, which we told, you know, there isn't really a question. It's that it's not going to get deregulated. There aren't any scientific concerns around Arctic apples. Um, it's more a question of, of, you know, when not, not. Not, not if, and uh, you know I just want to see it get planted, and I want to see it get in the hands of the consumer and uh, used in industry because it's a tremendous product, and and that's what keeps us going. We know the product is excellent, it's exciting, and that's we want we want to share that excitement with the consumers, and you know what people are going to be looking for this genetically engineered apple. They may say, oh, I don't touch genetically engineered apples, or oh, it's scary science, but when they see an Arctic apple and know that all we've done is Used apple genes to turn off an en- an enzyme that most people don't like in apples anyway because it makes them go brown. I think they can get past that.
0: Well, it's been a pleasure speaking with you today, Neil. All right. Well, thank
1: you. And I, I just encourage the listeners to go to our um, our, our ArcticApples.com website and uh, look to see what we're doing there. We're, we're very transparent. We're we're spending a lot of time educating and talking about. About uh, this product and and biotech in general and agriculture in general, for that matter. We also, um, you know, follow us on Twitter or our Facebook page and uh, ask us questions. We're more than willing to answer everything.
0: Okay, thank you so much. Thank you. You've been listening to Eye to Eye, an Ayn Rand Institute podcast. This episode with guest Neil Carter is titled. A Conversation on Genetically Engineered Apples. Neil Carter is an orchardist and president and founder of Okanagan Specialty Fruits, makers of the Arctic Apple. You can find more information about Okanagan Specialty Fruits or the Arctic Apple on their website at arcticapples.com. You can also keep up to date by following Arctic Apples on Facebook and Twitter. Information and episodes of this podcast are available on the Voices for Reason blog at blog.einrandcenter.org or on iTunes. You can find more information about Ayn Rand and her ideas on the web at einrand.org. I'm Amanda Maxim for Eye to Eye.